Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. For the latest on internet law and policy, hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center broadcasting live in sunny downtown Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We have another great show for you. We are back from our brief summer hiatus after 10 days in Rhode Island. And um, we have some good news and some bad news to report on the uh um, since our last show, on the happy side, um, our legendary producer, um, Jorge Hermida, a.k.a. the legendary Brasco, celebrated his 14th anniversary with Webmaster Radio. And I've had the good fortune of working with Brasco now for over eight years and thank him for his many years of service to this show and to the station. On the sad side, however, I must report the passing of our five-time guest, Robert Ellis Smith. He was the publisher of Privacy Journal, and he died at the age of 77 of a heart attack. Uh, It has been said that Robert has been in the privacy field before the field was even defined. Um, Privacy Journal is one of the longest-running newsletters in North America, dating back to 1974. And as Dan Tynan noted, uh, he was a privacy icon. But he was also much more than that. Um, He was a law professor, a journalist, an actor, a Block Island historian, and a a general Providence legend. And few um, remember, but Robert began his career as a journalist and was editor of the pro-civil rights Southern Southern Courier in Montgomery, Alabama in 1965. Um, not a, a very dangerous time to be publishing a pro-civil rights newspaper, in which he called it an act of patriotism. Um, I was able to attend his memorial service, and there were people from Montgomery who attended. So our deepest sympathies go to his, out to his family, friends, and loved ones, and he will be deeply missed. So um, today's show, however, we have, uh, now that the GDPR deadline has passed, what to do now for companies that um, may not necessarily got everything in, in, in order prior to the May 25th deadline. And with us is Mark Aldrich. And Mark is a privacy professional who um, is in uh, seconded to VMware. And he's more significantly, he's also the current um, chairman of the Internet and Privacy Law Committee of the Business Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. Mark. Are you with us? Well, yes, I am. Thanks for having me, Bennett. It's a pleasure to Mark, be here. Mark, I have to ask you a very important question. Um, are mm-hmm. there any tapes out there of you saying GDPR? Oh, <laughs> I certainly hope so. <laughs> I, I've, I've been lecturing on it for years, um, and if nobody has any recordings of me talking about GDPR, then I'm doing something seriously wrong. All right, so there you, there you have it, Amorosa. So... Um, 
<laughs> the uh, we have a uh, we have had a big push for this this day of May twenty fifth, which besides being my sister's birthday, um, was the cutoff for compliance uh, for the GDPR. And maybe why don't we just back up and start off with the the basic you know, what is GDPR? Well, GDPR uh, stems from a long history in Europe of uh, government overreaching and invading the privacy of its citizens. Uh, and the first global privacy law, or I should say sweeping privacy law that uh, hit any major geography was the data protection regulation, or data protection directive rather, that went into effect in uh, the 96-97 timeframe. And um, there's a... Uh, when it went into effect, it was dealing with the state of technology as it existed in the mid to late 90s. Uh, and as we know, looking back, you know, technology has grown by leaps and bounds. What uh, intelligence agencies can do has, has grown by leaps and bounds. And what started happening was with the advent of social media, with um, the, the proliferation of uh, connected devices that have shrunk the world uh, and made everyone, you know, one keystroke away from being connected. Uh, the European Commission recognized that, you know, a law written for the technology as it existed in, in the 95-96 timeframe probably isn't sufficiently covering all the risks to European citizens' privacy. So long, uh, along the way, they started negotiating and, uh, and drafting uh, a revision to the data protection directive and uh, and they called it the now it's called the general uh, data protection regulation uh, and there are significant differences between the two and how they are enacted and how they are enforced um, but the the long and short of it is uh, GDPR uh, in, in a lot of ways now preempts uh, a lot of individual member states uh, ability to uh, enact less stringent laws and, and it now covers uh, uh, everything as it exists today, which is to say that uh, for sure in five, seven, ten years, uh, there are going to be advents in technology that uh, are not currently considered in the law, and, and it'll necessarily be revised uh, to encompass those innovations. But what it does is it touches every business uh, that collects any personal information about any European Union citizen or a citizen in the, in the European Economic Area, um, and even covers those transient folks who are who have their data collected while in the European Economic Area who aren't residents. Uh, and uh, and so, as you can imagine, it really uh, has a significant impact on any business in the U.S. Uh, that uh, has any customers uh, in Europe and has some pretty onerous compliance uh, requirements. Now, everyone, a lot of people have been talking about GDPR, and I, I noticed a tweet yesterday by uh, um, another privacy expert that explained that Brazil's president has just signed a, a Data Protection Act into law, and these are in the show notes, which are available at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com, and that it requires a mandatory data protection officers, and it notes that when you can add um, pending legislation in Japan and India, uh, that would leave only the United States and China as the two countries without comprehensive data protection legislation. 
Well, there are a lot more than that, uh, but certainly the first world countries, um, you, those are a couple of the bigs. Uh, I, I think on the flip side, with the U.S., particular industries have uh, been promulgating privacy regulations uh, for decades. Uh, the banking regulation, the consumer finance, um, credit reporting agencies, uh, you know, that's been in place since the 70s. Uh, the, um, oh, now we have the, the uh, Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act um, and uh, the uh, Federal Communication Act, uh, HIPAA, um, all, all of this is, it's, it's covering uh, specific niches uh, that uh, consumers are involved in in the U.S. But yeah, we don't have a, a sweeping uh, general privacy uh, regulation like they do in Europe or like they do in, in several other countries around the world. And I think part of that's because of the sectoral approach that uh, has evolved here in the States. Now, with GDPR now coming into force, uh, a common question I got from people in the United States is, so what? What is that as a U.S. business who who may, uh, may have, may not have any operations in Europe, what does that mean to me? Well, with the internet and doing business over the web, uh, you know, not having a presence in Europe doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you shouldn't be adhering to the GDPR standards. If you have customers that are in Europe uh, and you do active marketing in Europe, if you uh, buy Google AdWords that publish in the EEA, uh, you know, have any um, links or sell any banner ads or buy any banner ad space um, for web pages that uh, target citizens in Europe, you can be deemed uh, required to comply with GDPR. So and, it, but I guess, yeah, but the, 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 what comes back to me from a lot of people is, okay, I have to comply. And if I don't, then what? Yeah, and, and that's the rub. The, there is the enforcement action threat. Uh, of the local, local data protection authorities uh, who can respond to complaints, uh, who can investigate claims and levy fines. Uh, under the data protection directive, the old law, there really wasn't a way, unless the uh, business actually had a presence in the EU, there really wasn't a way to enforce those fines. I mean, they could block their traffic, they could block the data transfers, mm -hmm. um, but uh, in order to find them, they'd have to have what we, what we know to be personal jurisdiction. Uh, under the GDPR, uh, and, and then also with its companion piece of uh, the Privacy Shield, which governs transatlantic data transfers, um, the FTC is, uh, has an ombudsman position that uh, is also in place to field complaints by EU citizens about U.S. companies' handling of their data. And, uh, and is empowered to uh, enforce uh, violations. So, yeah, it, it is a cumbersome mechanism, but there is a mechanism. Uh, the, one, of the, one of the other things that you have to consider is, you know, what we're not hearing a lot of right now are data protection authorities in the European Union countries ramping up staff for enforcement and investigation. We're not hearing it. So when you're looking at the volume of complaints that are going to be coming, and with the limited resources that the DPAs will have uh, to investigate uh, claims and prosecute violations, you know, I, I, I've been advising clients that uh, it's, it's wise to take a risk-based approach to evaluating uh, the potential exposure for doing business in Europe and, 
and the compliance that uh, GDPR requires. And so if you're not, right now if you're not in Europe, there is, it's an uncertain risk. If you're, if you're not in Europe, if you don't have any customers in Europe, if you don't do any marketing in Europe, then GDPR doesn't apply. But if you have some, if you have, if you over the years you've collected some data on European citizens, there's some existential risk that could, as things are worked out, become more real. Right, and I think that's that's a valid point. Uh, but the the key thing that the regulators will look at is uh, whether and to what extent the U.S. based business reach out to consumers in the European economic area. If they just marketed here in the States, for example, and somebody from Europe went on to a us-based.com website right. where that business didn't do any outreach to European citizens and purchased there and provided their data, GDPR still won't apply because there is no, think of it in the minimum contacts jurisdiction that we right. lawyers in litigation like. If, if the US-based company doesn't take an affirmative step to avail itself of, the, uh, of doing business in Europe, then, but European citizens still come to the U.S. essentially over the web to do business here in the States, that's not going to trigger GDPR compliance. And, it, and if that's the way the business is operating, then, then there's not a lot to worry about from a GDPR perspective. Now, there have been some statements um, within the Commerce Department here in the United States expressing frustration over um, one aspect of GDPR, and that's the... Uh, the whole who is controversy, which we did a separate mm -hmm. show on. Mm -hmm. And um, other than that, has there been any pushback from the U.S. or any other non-European country on the extraterritorial impact of GDPR? Well, the U.S., I think, is a bit unique um, in that you know, we previously had the safe harbor provision for transatlantic data transfers mm -hmm. um, that was based on the European Commission's finding that the United States uh, has within it a regime of privacy laws that was once deemed adequate for the protection of, U of uh, European Union citizens. Um, when our friend Edward Snowden uh, did what are now being referred to as the uh, Snowden revelations, mm -hmm. revealed what the NSA PRISM uh, program was doing and revealed the mass col data collection and analytics practices of our national security agencies, um, that really caused an uproar in Europe. And um, an Austrian law student named Maximilian Schrems uh, filed uh, a complaint with the um, Irish Data Protection Commissioner uh, to uh, deem all of Facebook's transatlantic trans data transfers of EU citizen data to the U.S. for processing invalid um, and violative of um, the European citizens' constitutionally guaranteed rights to privacy. So um, that wound its way through to the Ireland High Court uh, and then got referred to the European Court of Justice. Um, and what's interesting is a lot of commentators are talking about how the, the ECJ invalidated the safe harbor. And, and when you read the opinion, they really didn't. I mean, they did, but it was a procedural punt, as, as we see in the States a lot. Uh, what they did is they, rather than attack the concept of the safe harbor, they found a procedural flaw. Uh, the piece of paper that the European Commission issued uh, the, give it, deeming the US an adequate jurisdiction for privacy rights um, didn't contain a few magic words. And what the European Com the Court of Justice held was 
because the the finding of adequacy uh, failed to include these few magic words, it is void on its face. And without an adequacy finding, the safe harbor cannot function because that is what it's based on. Right, but that's so, now been replaced by the privacy shield. That, that's now been replaced by the privacy shield, which has also already come under attack um, by Mr. Shrems and the Ireland Data Protection Commission. Uh, and so, and what they're attacking now um, along the lines of uh, directly going after the adequacy finding, uh, the other method for transatlantic data transfers are what are called model clauses or standard contractual clauses, right. depending on who you talk with. And what they're attacking now are um, the standard contractual clauses based on the fact that um, the United States is an ad inadequate jurisdiction for the protection of European citizen data. Uh, and that will eventually wind its way into the European Court of Justice as well. Uh, and they're hoping that at some point along the way, the ECJ will take the matter on full force and make a determination. But uh, they, are, uh, they are a cautious group. They are a thoughtful group. And um, they are—they don't have a history of overreaching, uh, so they're—I think—they're going to look at things as as uh, minutely and as incrementally as they can when they evaluate claims like this. And um, we're going to take a short break um, in a, in a minute, but I would note that we had a former acting Commerce Secretary Cameron Carry on to talk about this claim that the um, Europe, the, the American privacy regime is inferior to that of the European regime and uh, you know he, he working with Brookings had published a report that uh, American privacy law was just as robust as EU privacy law and um, so when we're actually hoping to have him back on later this year to talk about where we stand on privacy legislation but um, when we come back I want to talk to you about the I know Shrems has filed some initial complaints on May 26th, I believe. So talk <laughs> yeah. about where we are on uh, GDPR enforcement or, or lack thereof. And then let's talk about what, what, what should companies be thinking about now. Um, so we're going to have more on that with Mark after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for its 7th Annual International Mobile Web Award Competition. This award program is an opportunity for mobile developers to demonstrate their expertise in this growing medium. It recognizes the individual and team achievements of web professionals all over the world who create and maintain outstanding responsive and mobile websites and mobile applications. Deadline for entry is September 28, 2018. Submit your entry today at www.mobile-webaward.org. That's mobile-webaward.org. 
It's time once again to get ready for the 35th Annual Miami Book Fair, November 11th through the 18th. Learn more at MiamiBookFair.com. Over 500 authors will be coming in from all over the world to read their books, answer questions from the audience, and sign autographs. Award-winning luminaries confirmed to attend this year include novelists like Elliot Ackerman, Robert Olin Butler, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and Deborah Dean. Nonfiction writers like Dr. Mark Agronin, Muhammad Al-Samwawi, Andrea Barnett, and Tina Brown. Celebrities like Justine Bateman, Steve Kornacki, Bill Press. These are just a few of the confirmed 500 authors scheduled to appear at the 2018 Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Check out the full schedule of events right now at MiamiBookFair.com. That's MiamiBookFair.com. Where affiliate marketing gets its buzz and mobile has its presence. WebmasterRadio.fm. Online, anytime. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly. We are talking um, about GDPR with Mark Aldrich. And um, just a brief detour uh, during the break, there was an advertisement for um, the Miami Book Fair, and we will again be having authors on um, CLBR from the Miami Book Fair, which has always been a fun part of this show. So we'll keep you posted um, as that um, as we know who we'll be having. And uh, so listen here for some another year of great discussions with um, Miami Book Fair authors. But today we have with us Mark Aldrich. And we're talking about GDPR, and for those who necessarily didn't get all their I's and T's crossed and dotted um, in time for the May 25th uh, GDPR compliance deadline, we're going to talk about what they should be doing. But first, we're going to ask Mark about what has been done so far on the enforcement side. Well, it's really interesting because you expect there to be a flood of complaints and uh, and investigations initiated uh, shortly after GDPR went into effect in May. Uh, and, and that and was kind of the buzz, wasn't it? Like pre May twenty fifth, like it's coming, it's coming. You know that to, to paraphrase Jaws, you know that dun 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 dun. Yeah, there, <laughs> that, that was there, kind of the zeitgeist in the air. There were some some great marketing efforts that some creative people put together that uh, used the Game of Thrones "Winter is Coming" and uh, converted it to a "GDPR is Coming" uh, mantra that uh, uh, was quite entertaining. But uh, what what we found is is uh, uh, you know sort of like the Y2K when everyone expected all hell to break loose and May 25th came and went and everyone woke up the next morning and. The only thing that happened was Max Schrems filed a few complaints. Right. Uh, but I think that was the fact that he waited a day, um, I think, was just, you know, to, to make sure that he did it on the day after, not the day of. Um, I can't speak to his motivations, but uh, the, immediately after it went into effect, um, uh, you know, Mr. Schrems, through his uh, nonprofit organization, filed uh, complaints against Facebook. Um, alleging the uh, Facebook's, that he styles it as there's forced consent, uh, violates GDPR, uh, filed complaints against Facebook subsidiaries, Instagram and WhatsApp, and also filed a complaint against uh, Alphabet, uh, Google's parent, uh, for uh, GDPR violations. And in those investigations, as you can imagine, are underway. 
Uh, what I thought would be what's interesting is, uh, you know, we're talking. There's been a lot of talk about the what are the ramifications if if a DPA investigates and finds that you violated, uh, and and you know we've heard about the two percent and four percent of last year's gross revenue uh, versus you know the the flat dollar fines, whichever is greater. And, and I think you know he's he's going after the biggest fish in the sea. Uh, in terms of you know processing consumer data, and it's just to put things in context as to what kind of a sting this might have, um, the the claims that were alleged, the violations that were alleged, were all based on uh, uh, violations of consumers' privacy rights, which trigger the four percent uh, fine. So when you put that into Alphabet's context, uh, I, I was just looking just uh, yesterday just to see what the potential was here. In the Google context, you know they had a total top line revenue last year of I believe just over 101 billion dollars. Uh, and when you convert that to euros and and do the math, uh, you know they they could conceivably, if they are found to have violated multiple avenues of uh, of GDPR, they could be open to a fine of up to about 3.8 billion dollars. Now, for a behemoth like Alphabet, you know, a 3.8 billion dollar fine is, you know, it's noticeable, but I don't think it's going to hurt. But when you translate that down into the vast majority of other companies, for whom that big of a hit will be noticeable and will hurt, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing. The, the potential anyway, and it's still potential, of uh, significant revenue uh, being pulled out of companies in, in the guise of fines that will uh, be used in the EU for uh, uh, other enforcement actions and ramping up more security, ideally. So well, it, it, I think it, it remains to be seen how it's how it's all going to play out. Now, the, I mean, that is significant. And, and at the same time, we're also seeing a number of U media companies um, and not offering their content to EU residents after GDPR. Okay. And I believe, you know, from the LA Times and others, are, they're just blocking EU residents in order to avoid compliance. And um, because of that risk, and, and, and is that having any impact in the EU about people being shut off from news sources? I've seen a lot of articles written about it. I haven't seen a lot of public outcry. Uh, you know, That's it, shocking. I mean, people in Berlin don't want to read the LA Times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to say no. <laughs> Go figure. I, I, I love the LA Times. They do great work. I'm, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, so uh, I'm a big fan. But yeah, at the end of the day, um, it, it, I think what's surprising most people is the lack of outcry of uh, European citizens and being essentially cut off from content that it comes out of the U.S., uh, from Silicon Beach, from Silicon Valley, uh, because there, there are so many other European technology companies that are filling the gap. Content is content. There's, you know, it, there's so many other sources. I mean, if you, we all think about our own daily consumption, all right, if one goes offline, one takes a vacation or whatever, we just we just go to another one, mm -hmm. and uh, and so it'll be interesting to see where we are three months from now, if those companies are are still adopting that strategy, finding that no one really is knocking on the door saying please please. Well, one thing I don't think 
any particularly large companies had a great handle on when uh, the compliance deadline was set was exactly how expensive it was going to be to truly be GDPR compliant. Uh, when you're talking about just the, the, the data deletion access and portability and what it takes to really tag and track every piece of personal information tied to a particular consumer and how that information flows uh, across the back-end systems of a business, I don't think anyone had a real appreciation for how complicated and how expensive a compliance exercise uh, GDPR was going to be. Uh, there are companies, for example, that um, innovate through grassroots effort. They do it uh, in-house. They build everything from scratch and they can build everything off a unified back end uh, and they can institute the concept of privacy by design to uh, tag and track all the data flows from the inception of the design. But there are a lot of other companies, particularly big companies, who innovate through what we call acquisition, where they, you know, you've seen Yahoo spend billions of dollars to acquire, you know, startups. Uh, Google spends an ungodly amount of money acquiring startups. Facebook uh, acquiring WhatsApp and Instagram. Uh, and, and, you know, and I've worked in companies that where they've acquired uh, their, a lot of their products from startup emerging growth companies. And none of the backend systems communicate. So when you're looking at a company, a large company that has hundreds of products in the market, each of which has its own back end, each of which collects consumer data as it's defined under GDPR and processes it and migrates it across their systems, you know, it, no one really knew the kind of Herculean effort it was going to take to either unify all those back end systems and rewrite all that code in, in 18 to 24 months or to develop systems that uh, tied fingers into the back ends of all of these disparate products to essentially write APIs to, to get into the back ends and, and tag and track in a rather unnatural and, and clunky way. But in both instances, the larger companies are spending easily 10 to $50 million just trying to get basic compliance with GDPR. And I guess so. Basically, let's go to what that means now. So, so for those listeners who are trying to figure out what they need to do, um, you know, the starting point it seems for GDPR is really doing almost like a data visual, visualization of tracking what hap what is the life of data in your company, who gets it, and what happens to it. Is that yeah, fair? Yeah, that has to be the first step: is uh, data inventory and data mapping. Uh, the, the inventory comes in is you, you have to first look into all your systems and find out what data you have. Right. And, and see it, it, some of the things that you wouldn't think would be personally identifiable information. When you look at the definition under GDPR, you'd be surprised at some of the device data, um, IP addresses, uh, IMEI numbers for mobile apps. Uh, the, you know, these are all things that can be tied together with other information to identify and therefore are considered personal information. So you really have to start with a thorough understanding of what is considered personal information under GDPR and then conduct your inventory to find out what of, of those categories of information do you have. And then you have to figure out how you're going to tag all of that, all those pieces of information, uh, associate them with a particular user and figure out how to track that across your systems. 
in some small and emerging growth companies that um, that have a single back end, uh, it's going to be a, a much easier road to hoe. But you have to start with the the definition of personal information and the data map. Uh, sorry, and the data inventory. Uh, and then you move from once you have the inventory set up, then you move to the data map, which shows you the points of intake. Uh, and it shows you where all of those pieces of information go when you run your uh, customer support portals, when you run your data analytics, uh, when you run your marketing programs, uh, when you collect user behavior data, whether it's, you know, it, this, this user, um, again, we've dropped some cookies and this user also likes this website and this website and so therefore we think that they're more likely to engage with this one of our products or solutions. Uh, straight down to uh, tracking the uh, mouse movements and the cursor movements across the screen to track what features and functionality in your software, in your solution, in your platform are being used, how they're being used to better enhance your solutions and offerings. So whether it's internal or external, if you're tagging and tracking and analyzing user data, um, you have to know where it's going to go. Because the next thing you're going to get, and this is what a lot of uh, companies experience also on May 26th, is they're going to start getting a flood of requests from consumers who have engaged with their platforms asking for copies of all the information you have on them. Right. And then asking for that it all be deleted. And if you don't comply within a commercially reasonable amount of time, then they can file a complaint and uh, and put you on somebody's radar and that's not some place you want to be. Right. And and so one aspect of doing this data mapping is also working with your vendors. Right. And yeah, ex explain what what it is that you where the role of vendors come in and, and what for those who were kind of um were Rip Van Winkle when <laughs> when GDPR was was coming into force you know, what they should be doing right now with respect to their vendors. Well, yeah, that's that's a great point because that's, uh, most companies will not do their analytics, for example, in-house because there are a lot of vendors out there who will do the analytics for you um, and have built much better mousetraps um, exactly. to handle that. But, um, so they, that's the, the next step is once you have your, your data inventory and your data map, uh, you have to know, you have to be able to uh, identify all the onward transfers. Uh, all the third parties that have access to or to whom or to which uh, the, their user data is transferred. And uh, when you do that, you know, you have to publish a list and maintain that list of what third parties are, are going to have access to a consumer's information. And that information needs to be published as part of the privacy notice that goes to the consumers. And for self-preservation interests, and here, here's where it gets tricky. Under GDPR, if you use a third party, if your company uses a third party to process, uh, to do analytics, to do customer support, to do uh, marketing outreach, um, the, the data controller, which is the, generally the company that collects all the data directly from the consumers, mm -hmm. the data controller is primarily liable for actions and misdeeds by every processor, every third party to whom their consumer information is transferred. Uh, and that becomes a very big stick. When you're so that means about you, you need to have contractual protections in place with your vendors that also include indemnity and reps and warranties that are protecting you in that respect. 
Right. And what we've been advising is, uh, and a lot of companies are doing this, they have a, a separate uh, data use protection agreement that is usually, if it's not appended to, it's incorporated into standard contracts with vendors. Uh, yeah, I've seen a number of them as addendums, but yeah. And, and that, that gets directly to uh, their obligations to provide adequate security, to provide adequate physical controls to access the data, uh, electronic controls to access the data, uh, and, and making sure through the, the um, discussions with the vendor that the vendor's only getting access to the data that they really do need to perform the functions for which they're being contracted. That's uh, a concept called data minimization. Uh, and they, they want, the GDPR really wants companies to only use the least amount of data that's required to uh, service the consumer relationship, to provide the services that, um, that, the, that the company is providing. Uh, and, and so they, they really want to discourage the concept that we used to have of, you know what, we, let's collect everything. We're not right. sure if we need it, but let's collect it and if we, it, let's see if we can find some way to use it later. Now it, they flip that on its ear. Now if the regulators come knocking, and you know, they will at some point, uh, and they say, okay, well you're collecting all this data. At the time you collected it, what was the purpose for the collection? Not what you're using it for now, but at the time you collected it. And if you collected data that you did not have a, a specific purpose, that's a violation. So you, they, it really requires you to put a lot of thought into what you're collecting, how you're collecting it, and why. And before that's, you hit the mic. And that's like where it. I think the, the, the continental divide is. Um, you have the European approach that wants you to um, you consider data as an a la carte type of offering, whereas you know the U.S. considers data as a buffet, all you can eat, and uh, you, you collect as much as you want, and then you decide what to do later. Yeah, that that, that buffet, as you call it, and that's that's a, a great visualization. Uh, but that that buffet is uh, is is coming to a close. Um, you know, we have. Uh, recently signed into law in California, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is very GDPR-like, uh, but it has some unique provisions. Uh, we're, I, I'm tracking and working with um, uh, legislators in several states right now who are uh, either currently introducing or about to introduce uh, similar sweeping statewide privacy laws. Uh, and I think this is where, to get back to your earlier point, Bennett, uh, where we will see a big push for a, a nationwide privacy law is because we're going to end up, right now, the data breach notification laws, for example, we have a different law for all 50 states. Right. And uh, and so if there's a... And we now finally have all 50 you states. You better be able to know how to comply. Yes, yes, yeah, very recently. Uh, and, and so we're going to, we're gonna, I could see us going down a road where we're going to have very much the same thing for privacy compliance, where we're going to have a different law to cover consumer information collected from residents of different states. And that's daunting. Uh, and it's, it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's daunting. I mean, the idea of trying to have 50 different um, GDPR regimes within the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and they're all gonna be sweeping. The, the, the California Act um, was very hastily done. 
necessarily so, given the circumstances. They were trying to fend off a ballot initiative that was much worse. Um, so, yeah, the legislature, I, I think, did yeoman's work in putting together the bill that they did and getting it passed. And I think from pen to paper to the governor, governor's signature was under two weeks. Yeah. Um, so they, they, they did incredible work to get that done and get it signed. Uh, and they were wise enough to put a horizon on it where it uh, doesn't go into effect until January 1 of 2020. And as soon as it was passed, they, re- they announced and recognized that it will need to be amended because it was done so hastily, there was not um, significant stakeholder input from outside of government. Uh, and, uh, and so they know that things are gonna have to change before it goes into effect. Uh, and interestingly, like the FTC has been, uh, prom- has been given uh, uh, the authority to promulgate regulations and interpretations uh, for the privacy laws for which it, it is responsible. The uh, California Attorney General's Privacy Division uh, has under California Consumer Privacy Act uh, has been given the rulemaking authority, um, and I think it's for the first time. I'm not sure on that, but I think it's for the first time. Uh, and so the AG's office will now be promulgating interpretations and uh, uh, and guidance on how best to comply, which is going to be an interesting dance that we're going to watch over the next 18 months because the AG's regulations um, aren't due out until next June of 2019. Uh, but the law is going to change. Right. I mean, it, it's a then. it's a mess. I mean, seriously, you're yeah. going to have to comply by January one with a war with regulations you haven't seen and a law that may be amended. Um, it's it's just insane. Yeah. But one thing that is not yeah. insane is that we have advertisers, <laughs> and so we're going to take a <laughs> short break and uh, um, let our advertisers have a say, and we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Content Marketing World 2018 comes to Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Learn more at contentmarketingworld.com. Content Marketing World 2018 is the one event where you will learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry. Content Marketing World will have over 120 sessions and workshops presented by the leading brand marketers and experts from around the world covering strategy, storytelling, ROI, demand generation, AI, and more. Leave Cleveland with all the materials you need to build a content marketing plan that will grow your business and inspire your audience. Save $100 off of registration using promo code radio one. That's radio and the number 100. Don't miss Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Register now at contentmarketingworld.com. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let webmasterradio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. Webmasterradio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate email brasco at wmr.fm webmasterradio.fm keep your headphones handy and the feed loaded we never stop do you the best gavel to gavel legal news and information on the net is right here 
This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. A couple of quick announcements. Uh, our station owners also own Cannabis Radio, and they are hosting and involved with the uh, U.S. Cannabis Conference and Expo that will be held in Miami August 24th through 26th. And you can get more information at usccexpo.com. And in addition, I want to give two quick birthday shout-outs. First to my father's um, Irish twin, Marie, uh, we were, who hosted us in Rhode Island. Um, she celebrated her 94th birthday on Sunday, so happy 94th, Marie. And in addition, today is my mother-in-law, Jean Rudd's 87th birthday. So the blessings of longevity have been bestowed upon them, and happy birthday to both of them. So we're back um, talking about GDPR. And uh, very briefly, we only have a few minutes left. The, the key concepts that, that companies need to grasp at this point um, would seem to be that um, would seem to be that um, the uh, to deal with issues of record deletion, data portability, access, data security. You can you can you quickly? I know it's that's a lot of lot to cover in a short period of time. But what are the key things they need to grasp now in terms of getting up to speed? Yeah, that that's a, a great segue uh, and. You remember, we were just briefly talking about the um, the exercise of taking your data inventory and developing your data map, and then figuring out how to tag and track the data across um, the, the your backend systems. The, the, and the reason for and the reason why it's important to do that so thoroughly is because it makes the rest of the obligations a lot easier. Uh, for example, there are a series of rights that are granted to the consumers under GDPR. Uh, the most impactful of which for businesses is the right to, um, to delete, the right to access, and the right to port all information that your businesses are collecting about European consumers. Uh, and all of that presupposes that you can successfully identify what information is there, where it is, and how to access it. Uh, and so the, the more effective you can be at, at what I call tagging and tracking, during your uh, uh, data mapping and inventory exercises, the easier this compliance is going to be. Uh, under Article 30 um, uh, of the GDPR, uh, businesses have an obligation to uh, be able to generate reports uh, about where all the data information uh, about a consumer uh, came from, how it was used, uh, what third parties had access to it, uh, when it was accessed and why. And, uh, and that those reports are supposed to be able to be produced on demand. So, um, so the, the requests that the companies are going to be most frequently and, um, and, and the soonest inundated with are going to be, show me what information you have about me, because we all love me some me, right? So show me what information you have about me, and, and once I see it, I can either leave it, ask you to delete it, in which case you need to wipe out all information you have collected and used and generated uh, through analytics and whatnot that can be directly tied to that user. Or they can say, you know what, Facebook, I, I don't like you anymore. Um, I'm going to go over to uh, another 
social networking app. And so I want you to provide for me in a, in a downloadable format, which you can get now, Facebook has completed this, uh, all of the information you have about me that I can then send over to my new social network um, so that they can have all the information that you had about me um, already ramped up so they can service me better. And then I want you to delete everything you have of me. So this concept of data portability, you need to be able to uh, provide the consumer with all of the data that you've collected about them in a, an easily machine readable or print format. Uh, and uh, in whether it's in CSV files or in uh, PDF uh, printouts, you know, whatever it is, um, that, that's going to be the number one thing that people are going to ask and, uh, with respect to GDPR. Um, the other things that uh, GDPR requires is that when you're building products and solutions, that you employ what's called privacy by design. And what that basically means is that when you start developing a new piece of software, uh, a new platform, a new solution, a new product, uh, you have to consider from the time you start putting the pen to the whiteboard, uh, privacy issues. How is the consumer private, how are consumer information going to be utilized in this service, in this platform? Uh, how are we going to intake it? What notices have to be provided? What consents have to be given? How are the consents going to be tracked? Uh, all the way through, uh, you know, what's the end use of the, of the consumer information and where does it go when we're done with it? Uh, and, and so when that is done from the outset of the engineering process, uh, you'll find that your ability to comply with GDPR on an ongoing basis will be infinitely easier. Now, that takes somebody who can bridge the gap and, and communicate with both engineers and uh, the legal team and the privacy team and be able to make, translate everything in the way that everyone needs to see it. Now, Mark, we only have a few minutes left. If people want to learn more about you and your background, where should they go? The easiest place for me, I'm working in-house these days, so I don't really have a, a public-facing marketing website. So the easiest place you can get me is at LinkedIn. Uh, you know, send me some in-mail if we're not connected. Um, we'll have a, we'll have a link on the show it. notes. We'll have a link yeah. on the show notes. And, and, then, and, are, and send me a note. Are you doing any upcoming presentations on GDPR you want to plug? We are. Uh, well, on GDPR... Um, or any, any other right presentations. Now, think, yeah. Right now, uh, through our committee at the Internet Privacy Law Committee of the Business Law Section, uh, we're working with the Intellectual Property Section and the Unfair Competition Law Section to put on a series of webinars yes. <laughs> uh, and in-person programs. And, and Bennett, you're, you're involved in these, um, where uh, we are bringing together uh, industry experts. Um, we're, we're working on uh, getting permission for the head of the uh, California AG's Privacy Unit to um, be able to come with us. But we're going to be talking about California Privacy Act. Uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, and uh, it, so there's the, the first sub session. And it looks like it's going to be on September 26th, where we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of the California law, uh, how it applies, uh, to whom it applies, a little compare contrast with GDPR for those of us who have been through the GDPR compliance exercise, and how it's different, uh, and uh, and where we think the law is going to go in its evolutionary process over the next 18 months. The second section, a session, will be, um, it's to be scheduled, but it'll be in October. Uh, these are all going to be webinars that we're working on making publicly available. Um, and for all the lawyers and the privacy professionals, we're going to be um, having uh, both CLE and CPE credits for, uh, for these sessions. The second session will be bringing together the various stakeholders, the ACLU, uh, various leaders in business to talk about uh, how good or bad 
or great or horrific this California law is for their particular constituencies. And those are gonna lead into the in-person meetings uh, in the second week of November uh, for our three sections, which again are gonna be open to the public. And so if people wanna come to the seminars, I believe they can, uh, where we're gonna be talking in particular about the concerns in, in my world uh, to the business community. Uh, or in Bennett's world, be talking to the intellectual property community, uh, people who deal with patents and technology development. And in the unfair competition law section, of course, they're uh, members of that committee are members of the FTC, um, and uh, they're gonna be talking about uh, how the California Privacy Act uh, impacts unfair competition in California, uh, which will be a lot about enforcement actions as well. And, and uh, we'll but, have more information on each of those programs as, as they are announced and will be posting them in our um, show notes for as we move along. Um, Mark, I really want to thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as you, as always and um, look forward to having you back to work through some of these issues. It's, uh, it's not easily digestible in an hour, but I think you did a great job. Well, thank you. They, thanks for having me. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I, I enjoy talking about these things. It's it, it, it's an area of law that is constantly changing, uh, and it's a constant learning curve, and uh, and so it it makes it fun for me because I'm twisted that way. But uh, but I, I also enjoy talking about it and, and helping others understand uh, where things are and where they go. So uh, so thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. And then one last update: um, we'd had a show a while back about Rafe Badawi and the fight to free him. Well, the um, Saudi government recently arrested his sister, um, and the Canadian government objected uh, on Twitter, and that led to a huge diplomatic row with the Saudi government expelling Canada's ambassador, um, selling off Canadian assets, ceasing flights to Canada. So um, this is an ongoing diplomatic struggle, and uh, we'll keep you posted as we go along. But uh, thanks again, Mark, and thank you, our listeners, for um, coming back after our summer hiatus. Um, fall is coming, and it's time to roll up our sleeves. So we'll be back next week for another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Check us out at internetlawcenter.net. We're a full-service internet law firm. And I uh, look forward to talking to you next week right here on webmasterradio.fm for another edition of Cyberlaw and Business Report. Have a great week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of webmasterradio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution... Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.